0: Morning, everyone. Let's give careful attention as we read from the Word of God, remembering that this is God's Word, as we find it in the book of Luke, chapter 1, reading from verse 26 to 38, Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled.
1: And then the angel left her. Here ends the reading. I don't know how many weddings I've presided over in uh, 26 years of ministry, some of them stand out um, more than others. Like the one that I did in a game park in KZN, and we were out on a veranda that was about a metre and a half uh, off the ground, and I was marrying an Australian to a South African, so there was much mirth going on between South Africans and Australians. And um, we'd got through the vows, and everything had gone smoothly, and I was in full flight in the sermon, and suddenly all of the Aussies, who were all sitting on that side, took out their cameras and started taking photographs of me. And I thought, that's a rather strange Australian custom that I'd never heard of before, until I realized that actually it wasn't me they were photographing, but a rhino, cow, and her calf had wandered right up, silently, right up behind me, I literally could have reached out and and touched her if I'd wanted to. Well, that was the end. I mean, how do you compete with that? You know, I guess this is the problem if you have a wedding in a game park. That was the end of the sermon, the end of the wedding. Wedding interrupted. Um, I'm marrying, uh, well, I'm participating in the the wedding of Andrew and Caitlin next week. Luckily... (laughs) Uh, Luckily, it will be in here, and so no chance of rhinos interrupting that. I think this story, though, is much worse than a rhino story. Imagine an ordinary girl preparing for a wedding, minding her own business. She'd been to countless wedding expos, collected bridal magazines, um, selected her bridesmaids, flower girls, maid of honor, had their dresses made. And while she was checking the seating plan for the reception for the fourth time, trying to find a space for Aunt Griselda, who wasn't talking to her because she'd been been left off the list. An angel appears to tell her to call off the wedding. You're about to be pregnant. Don't think that'll be worse? Something more important is about to happen that'll put your wedding day in the shade. A day of such importance that you need to put your wedding on hold, the day that you dreamed of your whole life needs to be postponed. Recall the invites, cancel the caterers, the DJ and the venue. Can you imagine the humiliation? Can you imagine the shame? Can you imagine the explaining that needed to happen? God had planned the virgin birth centuries before the angel appeared to Mary. It comes in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That prophecy is 700 years before Jesus was born. It was a sign that something extraordinary was taking place. It was a sign that God was visiting our planet. And so, in what must be the understatement of the the millennium, Luke tells us in verse 29 that Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. I want us to consider three reasons for this uncommon birth of Jesus. Three reasons why the birth had to be a virgin birth. And the first is this, our rescuer comes from God. That is, the virgin birth is God's initiative. Notice that God takes the initiative to send the angel Gabriel in verse 26. God finds favor with Mary in verse 30. I want you to look at verse 30 if we could have it on the screen. There it is. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. It's very important that we understand what that verse doesn't mean and what it does mean. Um, it means that she is an object of grace, not that she is a means of grace. Uh, through a misunderstanding of that verse, Mary was seen to be so full of grace by some in church history that she could actually dispense grace to others. That's not what that verse is saying. And so one of the many errors that has arisen about Mary is that she is a co redeemer with Jesus. She's called the co-redemptrix, which is an appalling blasphemy. The verse literally says God put his grace on her. She is an object of grace. She doesn't have it within herself in order to dispense it to others, as has been thought across history. Notice in verse 32 that God is working to establish his plan, to install the rescuer as a ruler in the line of David. Look at verse 32. Um, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Can you see that it's the Lord God who is active in these verses? It is him who is achieving this great rescue. The Holy, God the Holy Spirit, in verse 35, will mysteriously fertilize the ovum. It's all God's work because God can do anything, according to verse 37, for no word from God will ever fail. The announcement that the angel makes of Jesus in verse 32 is, in fact, an announcement of rescue. The name Jesus means God saves, God rescues. A king in the line of David had been promised who would bring rescue to God's people. For people who are beyond rescue need somebody else to take the initiative. And that is what God did in the virgin birth. I wonder if, if our generation has domesticated Jesus because we think of him as being a helpless baby like the one I baptized this morning. In, that, in those terms, he's no longer a baby. He's not helpless and dependent. It is possible, though, that the endless nativity scenes that we see at this time of the year may have domesticated Jesus in our minds. But the core message of Christmas, friends, is that a rescuer was sent because we need rescue. And God had to take the initiative. It couldn't come from with us, within us. It's not a a message that our culture responds well to. We don't like to think of ourselves as being needy or in need of rescue. And so many of us have experience of speaking to people about Jesus and having the response of, well, that might be good for you. Maybe you, you need that as though you are the needy one. I don't really need that. It's a crutch. It's for weak people who can't sort themselves out. But if we don't accept the central point of Christmas is that God took the initiative to bring rescue to people who are helpless, then we haven't understood the original meaning of Christmas. Maybe we are tempted to think that other people need rescue, not us so much. Poor people, or corrupt people, or broken people, or needy people, or bad people, or maybe addicted people, they need a crutch. They need Jesus, but I'm not poor or corrupt or needy or bad or addicted, and so I don't need rescue. I'm okay. But if we want to welcome Jesus into our lives, he comes first as a rescuer that all of us are in desperate need of. And so friendship with God, which is what Christmas hails to the world, and again this year, starts by acknowledging our need, all of us, to be rescued. Salvation ultimately must come from the Lord. And so the virgin birth is an unmistakable sign that our rescue can never come from human effort. It must be the work of God himself. It must come from heaven. But here's the second thing the virgin birth teaches us is that our rescuer needs to be like us. The virgin birth made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. Uh, Look at verse 31 and verse 32. You will conceive and give birth to a son and are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Well, whose son is he? Is he Mary's son or the Son of the Most High? And the answer is yes. It's so important to understand that Jesus was one person with two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. Jesus is not part man and part God, he is fully God, the Son of the Most High, and he is fully man, the son of Mary. Becoming a man, being born into the world like all other men, was the means that God used to send his his son into the world. Uh, One Christian theologian called Wayne Grudem says this, if we think for a moment of other possible ways in which Christ might have come to the earth, none of them would so clearly unite humanity and deity in one person. It probably would have been possible for God to create Jesus as a complete human being in heaven and then send him to descend from heaven to earth without the benefit of human parents. But then it would have been very hard for us to see how Jesus could be fully human as we are physically descended from Adam. On the other hand, he goes on to say, it probably would have been possible for God to have Jesus come into the world with two human parents, But then it would have been hard for us to understand how Jesus was fully God. No, God chose the perfect way. One person, two natures. You know, in pagan mythology, the gods often came down to earth and sired offspring with human women who then gave birth to superheroes. Hercules, for example. The central truth of Christmas Is that God became man. He did so not by a deity having intercourse with a human. There was no sexual activity, as in pagan mythology, and Mary remained a virgin until after Jesus was born. It is a miracle, it is a mystery. Jesus is not an enlightened human like Hercules who climbs Mount Olympus on our behalf to bring us the knowledge of God. He is God He is God-man, come from His Father to make Himself known to us. And so the virgin birth is the divine signal of the dawn of a new age. God chose to reveal Himself to us in the best possible way by becoming like us, taking on a form that we would best understand, that we would find approachable. Uh, Not like when God made himself known on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, when everybody was trembling in their boots and nobody wanted to go near the mountain. Do you remember that story? That's not how he did it with Jesus. He used humanness to reveal himself to us. I once caught this silly program on television called Undercover Boss. Have you seen that? It's a reality TV where the boss of a chain business, goes undercover into his own store, into her own store, in various locations with various jobs around the store, and interacts with the employees to see what's really going on on the ground. And the employees, of course, are always very shaken to the core when they realize who he is at the end of the program. It's a little bit like that. Jesus comes in at the ground level, at grassroots. He comes in as a man. It's a very kind way for him to reveal himself to us. It's gentle, non-threatening, and it had maximum impact. Jesus needed to be a human because only a human being could pay the price for human sin. It had to be somebody who was fully human, tried and tested in every way like the rest of us in order to die for us in a way that would satisfy God. Only a human sacrifice would suffice for the price of sin. Animal sacrifices didn't work, which is why they had to keep happening. They were inadequate. But Jesus, a man tempted in every way, lived a sinless life and then died our death to bring us forgiveness and to make us friends with his father. C.S. Lewis put it like this. The son of God became a man that men might become sons of God. What a wonderful truth the virgin birth is. Here's the third and final reason for the virgin birth. Our rescuer comes from God. Our rescuer needs to be like us. And finally, our rescuer needs to be more than us. Look at verse 35. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. That is, the Lord Jesus Christ will be called holy because he will be born like no other human being, sinless. Jesus had no sin at birth and he had no sin in life. Because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he inherited no sin he did not descend from Adam in exactly the same way in which every other human being has descended from Adam. And so the guilt and the moral failure that belongs to all other human beings did not belong to Christ. The unbroken line of sin finally has been interrupted. That's the moment that the world has been waiting for. I think it's one of the reasons for the popularity Of superhero movies today. It reflects our dream of somebody coming to rescue us who's not less than us, but someone who is more than us. I watched Guardians of the Galaxy 3 yesterday with my son, and so superheroes are fresh in my mind. We long for a Savior who is more than us, who can transcend our problems and fix what we can't fix. Right throughout the Old Testament, the one born above sin was being searched for. A futile search because everyone born so far was born under sin. That's why we have those endless genealogies in the Bible. The ones you hope you never have to read when you're on the reading roster. Jesus had to be fully God so that he could face down sin on its home turf. He has to be human in every way, except one, sinful. Only a human sacrifice would satisfy God and be enough to bring our rescue. But only a sinless sacrifice would satisfy a holy God. Now, friends, having children out of wedlock, out of marriage, is no longer a big deal in our society today. I'm told that 60% or more of children in South Africa are born outside of marriage. Even so, should any girl claim that her pregnancy was the result of divine intervention, her claim would be treated with some suspicion, would it not? Even more so in an age when illegitimacy was much bigger deal than it is today. The Jewish law regarded a betrothed woman who became pregnant as an adulteress, subject to death by stoning. And we all know that small towns don't treat kindly young boys who grew up with questionable paternity. We know nothing of Jesus' grandparents. I wonder what they thought. How would they have responded to Mary's news? One Christian author observed that in our day, with family planning clinics offering convenient ways to correct mistakes that might disgrace a family name, it is extremely improbable under existing conditions that Jesus would have been permitted to be born at all. Mary's pregnancy in poor circumstances with the father unknown would have been an obvious case for an abortion. And her talk of having conceived as a result of the intervention of the Holy Spirit would have pointed to the need for psychiatric treatment and made the case for terminating her pregnancy even stronger. Thus, says this author, our generation, needing a savior more perhaps than any that has ever existed, would be too humane to allow one to be born. Of course, the dubious start to Jesus' life was not missed on his opponents. The Pharisees sarcastically say that at least they are not illegitimate children. Look at this verse, John eight forty one. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. And it's likely that that was a dig at Jesus' questionable paternity. The circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus have been ridiculed and questioned for time immemorial. Isn't it striking that God arranged the most humiliating of circumstances possible for Jesus' first entrance? It was a fitting start to his life, for his life would end in humiliation too. On the cross, stripped naked, packed with your and my sins. Mary, though, has a different response to Jesus' opponents. It's quite extraordinary, actually. Remember, she was a young girl, probably in her mid-teens. Look at what she says in verse 38. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Philip Yancey says... She was the first person to accept Jesus on his own terms, regardless of the personal cost. Can I ask you this Christmas, I hope that you are not a fan of Jesus. It's not enough to be a fan of Jesus. You know, you get people at Christmas time who are big fans of Jesus and the whole Christmas thing. It's good for the kids. He's inoffensive, he's, he's undemanding, he's a baby, what, you know, how, can, how can he be demanding on my life? The angel tells Mary in verse 32 and verse 33 that Jesus will be a great king. Kings can't be domesticated, they can't be held at an arm's length, they can't only be listened to when it's, when it's convenient. Isn't it time that we move beyond the sentimental view of Jesus and see him for who he really is? He's no longer in his mother's arms. He's no longer on the cross. He is reigning at the right hand of God from heaven. He is an uncommon king. Have you submitted to him? Well, why don't we bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment of reflection. Thank you that you have not left us in this world to our own devices. Thank you for sending your Son in a way that we can understand. Thank you for the virgin birth. And thank you for the opportunity uh, this time of the year to remember it and to celebrate it and to see the implications of it. And I want to pray for those who might be amongst us this morning who don't yet know you. Perhaps they are still fans. I pray that you would help them to move to being subjects of the King, to accept him on his own terms, as Mary did, no matter the cost. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.